episode 122. This time for sure. As recounted very briefly in episode 119, or was it 120? The rare arrived at Stonington Island in early March. The Ronnies immediately went ashore as a deputation to protest the British presence on the site at East Base. Major Butler received them graciously and firmly contested US sovereignty over the island and denied the state of the East Base huts resulted from British pilfering and vandalism, various small stocks of American consumables about Trapassi House and its surrounds detracting from the absolute veracity of his rebuttals. But the FIDs laid the bulk of the blame for the state of East Base and its contents on the multiple waves of Patagonian visitors prior to the arrival of the Port of Beaumont. On the 31st of March, while the rare personnel unloaded one of their weasels, some books say they had two, some say they had three, some accounts recount four, from the port of Beaumont, the Fitzroy and the Trapassi arrived. Two port of Beaumont lifeboats lashed together, served as buoyancy for the heavy tracked vehicle, but with the tide out, the islip of Stonington Island lay four feet above the gunnels. Commander Ronnie suggested driving the amphibious vehicle off the boats and along the shore to a low point the boats couldn't approach. Engineer Woody fired up the machine and depressed the control levers. The weasel went into the water, but with its waterproof bungs left out, water went into the weasel and it sank, the engine giving out on ingesting sea for the first and last time, and Woody commenting, I'm getting the hell out of here. At just that moment, Ike Schlossback called out, Hey look, company, as the British ships carrying Governor Clifford rounded the point. The Brits anchored up in Back Bay while the rear dragged their wet weasel ashore with lines and swearing. This arrival didn't see Finn Ronnie's attitude towards sharing Stonington Island with Limeys improve, but the divisions within the rear showed up clear, with several Americans, led in their charge by the headstrong and voluble McClary, openly heading over the hill to fraternise, in direct contravention of standing orders. This flouting of his authority only increased Finn Ronnie's antipathy towards the Brits. This ramped up further because of illicit visits to the Fitzroy and the Trapassi, and return visits to the Beaumont by British sailors and expeditioners. Jenny Darlington and Jorge tried to make a surreptitious visit to the Trapassi under cover of darkness, but were found out in the wake of a fire aboard the ship. McClary and Chuck Smith, sent to find them, rode the port of Beaumont's wherry ashore, and then out to the British ships, then out of the way of the British ships as they manoeuvred to best allow the Fitzroy to provide firefighting support to the Trapassi. The two Americans, already two hours into their snipe hunt in the dark in the Antarctic, went aboard the Fitzroy once the ships lay at anchor alongside one another, to find His Excellency, Governor Clifford, calmly directing firefighting operations from beneath a golf cap and wielding a pipe. And I like to think it's that sort of dedication to the affected eccentricities of the aristocracy that landed him the Governor's job. Mac and Chuck found their missing colleagues in the Captain's cabin, enjoying whiskey with that officer, apparently entirely unfussed by the conflagration going on next door. Their arrival prompting another round of drinks, the first mate arrived, so they offered him a drink, and only then inquired after the fire. Things weren't going well. The engine room was ablaze, and the firefighting plumbing was frozen. Still, chin-chin, what? 
the captain headed to the bridge, returning to announce both ships lay aground. They got the ships off the hard and got the fire under control, prompting another round of drinks. Then the fire went out of control again. The Americans present delegated the Chilean to go and fetch all the fire extinguishers he could find aboard the port of Beaumont. Jorge returned with one fire extinguisher and his gaucho hat, but the fire was out and neither was needed. McClary got a telling off from Ike for leaving the ship without informing anyone, and Jenny got raked over the coals in Commander Ronnie's cabin. Contrary to his intentions, this only further divided Ronnie's expedition against itself. I don't know if there's a leadership circuit breaker anyone could throw into the mix to bring the rare back from its sour season, but Finn Ronnie's mode certainly didn't fit the need, and it seems every step he took to bring about order and unity was actually more divisive than doing nothing. Seems familiar and relevant to the present day, for some reason. Repairing the fire damage saw the British ships stay on in Back Bay two days longer than anticipated. The night before their delayed departure, a 65-knot gale saw all three ships in danger of dragging their anchors and ending up on the glacier foot. The three ships' watchkeepers put their vessels ahead at the same time, and without weighing anchor, resulting in a tangled snare of chains and warps and much swearing, as the only three ships anywhere on the Antarctic Peninsula coast at that moment all tried to occupy the same space at the same time. Finn Ronnie forbade the rare members sending mail out with the British ships, his own secret swearing in as a US postmaster, making him all too aware of the implications of mail heading to the USA with British franking. The horror. The horror. Both Commander Bingham and Sir Miles visited with Finn Ronnie and offered their reassurances that the damage done at East Base was a matter to take up with the Argentine and Chilean navies, but Anglo-American relations remained officially frosty for several months regardless. In one of his dispatches north, Finn Ronnie cited the cleanliness of Trapassi House as evidence it could not have served as the FID's home for more than six weeks, passive-aggressively accusing the British team of occupying East Base through the preceding year. Even if the mean of FIDs didn't indicate tidy living in cramped but harmonious digs, the photographic record of their activities in the year prior to his arrival bears this out as an unwarranted slander. Reg Freeman instituted Saturday sports in the second year the FIDs spent at Stonington Island, this being a thorough clean out of the hut by all hands present, and it led to even cleaner living than in their first winter. Having delivered the skis for the Oster, established a second-hand Nissan hut, this being added to the end of Trapassi House and mounted on stilts, which then received their own walls, giving the Fids a storeroom and a coal cellar in one, and allowing Bingham a last opportunity to check in on his fledglings before leaving them to fly their own path through the 1947 winter, the Fitzroy and the Trapassi sailed the following day. Ted Bingham's colleagues out on the trail gave the radio batteries a long warm-up in the tents in preparation for a long farewell chat with their departing leader, but never managed to raise base E that evening, only later learning the reason for the radio sked laxity at Stonington Island arose because of the flame-based excitement aboard the Trapassi. On April 10th, the trail team explored Bill's Gulch and the path down to the Waddell Sea, discovered, but not especially well mapped or at all marked, by members of the USASA six years earlier. This being the ultimate goal of the outing, the party turned west for home on the 11th. Good weather, 
good surfaces and dogs alert to the homeward progress, leading to impressive daily distances. They ran stock take at two-ton depot before wrapping ropes around their sledge runners for the precipitous descent down Sodomy Slope. In their absence, wind removed the snowy cover, leaving polished blue ice surfaces. John Tonkin ran out another of his nine lives when, to push his sledge onto the slope, his ropes and foot brake proved insufficient. The sledge ran out of control, and to save his dogs from being crushed beneath it as it overran them, Tonkin overturned the entire unit, bringing it to a halt but throwing himself onto the hard surface in turn, where he received bad concussion. Doc Butson examined the incredible hard case and deemed him still not dead, but unlikely to excel in or enjoy further sledge driving, so his comrades strapped Tonkin onto one of the sledges and made more cautious progress back to Stonington Island, which they reached in the evening of the 13th of April. The 40-day foray covered only 200 miles, but it set the fids up with a sound path eastward and set John Tonkin in high regard as a sledging leader and trail companion, though this was his longest ever sledge journey. With 19 days laid up and lots of dodgy terrain and circumstances, he got his team through all the narrow gates of fate and only concussed himself because he was unwilling to let anyone else test the dangerous path that lay ahead. Sterling fellow, that Tonkin. Kevin Walton felt very pleased to see his hyacinth bulb flowered in the greenhouse in his absence, and this colourful nod to biology in warm climes and times left behind took pride of place in the centre of the dining table. Finn Ronnie's injunction against fraternisation with the Fids wore thin, the rebellious clique of his divided expedition heading to tea at Trapassi House with increasing frequency and decreasing affectations of subterfuge. No more circuitous routes along the shore and changing course for the Fids hut once out of sight. Just, I'm off over the hill to fraternise and you can suck it up, buttercup. Doc Don McLean finally convinced Commander Ronnie to acquiesce to Major Butler's entreaties for cooperation between the Fids and the Rare, highlighting the poor state of the East-based dog teams as the key lever. Ronnie relented and the no longer furtive transits over the hill continued without pause only now with official sanction. Ronnie, looking for some new avenue down which to bitch and moan, selected Harry Darlington as his whipping boy, castigating the chief pilot for allowing the Norseman's engine to rust while in transit. Given Darlington spent most of the transit working to modify the second beechcraft and make good on the waste of time and energy Commander Ronnie imposed on him through untrained rigging, this was a bold gambit, and it didn't play out his way further denting his credibility in the eyes of all but the unconditionally loyal Ronnieites. Between not staying in his lane regarding all matters aviation, his sustained pissing and moaning about the presence of Chinook, and now this insult to Darlington's integrity off the back of his own mistake back at Beaumont, the relationship between Finn Ronnie and Harry Darlington, and the friendship of convenience between Jackie Ronnie and Jenny Darlington, were on a steep downhill slope from that point onward. The Ronnies occupied Finn's former hut, built separate to the main accommodation block at East Base, a plywood passage connecting the buildings during this new occupation. The Darlingtons occupied the former doctor's room, one of two separate spaces in the main accommodations building, the other private space falling to Ike Schlossback. 
Commander Ronnie allocated bunk cubicles to men he thought unlikely to have much in common, hoping this might curb nighttime chatter that might otherwise keep people awake late. This break with the mean of East Base during the USASA led, according to Jenny Darlington, relying on the observations of Harry Darlington and Ike Schlossback, to greater friction within the hut, as poorly matched companions shared their small nooks and got in each other's personal space and expressed lifelong habits with little love to temper the resentments these habits caused. In spite of its large coal range, the main accommodation hut radiated dankness, sometimes growing so cold that Ike Schlossback's dentures, left overnight in a mug of brine, froze in place. Don McLean began killing, skinning and mounting the local penguins, intending recouping some financial reward from this year away from gainful employment by selling the resulting taxidermic treasures to Abercrombie and Fitch. In the workshop, attempts at repairing tents and sledges for the coming sledging season commenced, and rare members kept up their skiing fitness and skills with practice on the glacier foot, with Bill Laterty instructing those new to the activity. Evening classes in cooking, Katenko demonstrating how to fry everything that came to hand, and boxing, Andy Thompson giving an opening for violent reprisals to everyone who found him annoying, kicked off. Over the hill, the Fids fitted out their new Nissan hut with shelving and took indoors those stores and equipment emerging from beneath their winter drifts of snow as the Austral summer thaw reached its maximum extent. Reg Freeman took on quartermaster duties and fitted out the space in his care, much as Arkwright did his grocery. The emergency stores, a year's supply of food and fuel, remained in a hut kept separate to the growing Trapassi House edifice as insurance against fire. To ease international tensions over plumbing, the Fids built a new two-hole privy off the end of the new Nissan hut. This appended a bathroom Ken McLeod furnished with a boiler comprising a 44-gallon drum on its side and heated by a fireplace constructed from bricks magpied from the former whaling station at Deception Island. The wireless room became Ken Butler's bunk, and the vacated bed became Terry Randall's, the wireless operator operating the wirelesses in their new home in the porch. Kevin Walton and Doc Butson turned one of the unused corners of the hangar into a sledge workshop, on the 27th of April, the Fids celebrated the completion of their new hut fitments for the winter with a small party. Over the hill, it took several weeks to finish ferrying equipment and stores ashore from the iced-in port of Beaumont, once the sea ice froze in firm enough to support sledging. The remaining Huskies made up one competent team, and Chinook pulled a lesser weight, often under the guidance of Jenny Darlington. Her insights on the experience warrant recounting in full. Quote, Despite fights and fouled up traces, Chinook and I were able to become part of the supply train, plying back and forth from the ship to the base. Each day was an adventure. Each day I learned something new. Now, years later, I can relive the thrill of driving Chinook. In my imagination, I see the great black and silver husky his belly flat against the snow to gain pulling power, his lips curled back in a dog's laugh, and his tongue lolling out like a red shirt tail as he raced over the white road. I began to understand the deep affection 
the almost fanatical feeling some of the men felt for the dogs and the trail. It was a matter of interdependence. Before I started driving Chinook, I did not understand this. I had thought of the husky as a pet, a difficult one at that. As I grew to know Chinook in his professional capacity, I began to understand better Harry's feeling for the dog. It was a mixture of survival and sentiment, indicated by the prayer for the dogs. Look kindly, O Lord, on these thy creatures, for we are dependent on them, and they, with us, are utterly dependent on thee. Then the full extent of the tragedy resulting from the distemper epidemic was brought home to me. During this phase of the rare, the full impact of the loss of the dogs to distemper made itself felt. While the expedition stood to make excellent use of aircraft in support of trail parties and vice versa, the dearth of strong huskies meant the Americans only fielded a single sledge in a single party, a big shortfall on expectations based on Finn Ronnie's epic sledge foray with Carl Eklund during the USASA. We can't use our surveyors. We have dog support, but the aircraft has no skis. Ironic, because our aircraft work, but our dogs don't. Hey, if your aircraft work and your dogs work, stop! You're just going around in circles. Think, Fry, think. Everyone's depending on you. Detente and diplomacy aren't my strong suit. They weren't Finn Ronnie's strong suit either. Fortunately, Ken Butler was better at it, and the Fids and their rare counterparts reached a mutually beneficial working agreement that stood to make the most of everyone's time and resources without throwing too many political cats among the penguins. Finn Ronnie most desired a long southern journey down the western side of the peninsula and crossing to Mount Tricorn on the Weddell Seaside, comprising rare personnel and supported by a FIDS dog driver and their team. Ken Butler most desired a British party with an American observer travel via Bill's Gulch to the Weddell Seaside and work as far southward as possible. The Beechcraft could then survey the coast and mountains, using these trail parties as ground control, and thereby multiplying everyone's outcomes manyfold. Major Butler also figured on requesting a trail party head out from Hope Bay to survey its way south along the Waddell Sea coast and to rendezvous with a party able to guide them to Stonington Island via Bill's Gulch, further adding to the overall productivity of the sledging season. The members of the nominal trail parties from each expedition grew together in the months leading up to the start of sledging operations, sharing knowledge and picking the best equipment from the materials brought to the party by both parties. The difference in approach to dog maintenance and sledge operations between the expeditions extended well beyond the range of words used to start, stop and turn a team to the left and right, which I'll ask someone who lived the experience to give voice to, as the written versions leave themselves open to several interpretations, and I'm already well sick of getting pronunciations incorrect. Where the American sledges comprised what the most industrious among their team pieced back together in the wake of the Patagonian visits, the FIDS machines comprised the state-of-the-art impaired-down Nansenian trail equipment, turned out with British meticulousness and attention to making things look nice and homely, right down to the vehicles, each bearing its name, carefully painted on the crosspiece between the handlebars. The FIDS ran their dogs in fan formation. This mode came south with Ted Bingham 
who learnt it from Greenland Inuit during his time with Juno Watkins expeditions. The base ephids held to the practice, figuring each dog on an individual trace, afforded greater safety in crevassed terrain, as a single dog might break through a snow bridge without taking the other dogs down with it, and it afforded a boss dog scope to address any insolence from any other dog with ease. The Americans ran their team on a centre trace, a formation of great advantage in forested areas as it keeps the team in line astern on their leader. This came at the cost of the crevasse advantage cited for the fan arrangement, though this later became the more common form of team arrangement in the Antarctic national programs using dogs for transport. The FIDS dogs lay up on their spans in all weather, where the rare members, largely out of pity for their short-coated Chilean street dogs, built a canvas and snow shelter for the dogs, lining it with the bales of feed slated for the llamas that turned out to be alpacas that turned into dog food. One morning, Jenny Darlington arrested the dog team called the Orange Bastards when they gave Kevin Walton the slip, and this incident led to her enjoying the privilege of driving the team on the regular. Kevin harnessed them and drove them onto the sea ice with Jenny as passenger, and then handed them over to her care, heading back to his work in the hangar while she exercised the dog team. She described the sensation of driving the Orange Bastards as follows. Quote, Surging against the harness, the huskies whined in eagerness. I pulled the slack from the traces. Up, dogs! It was a feeble attempt to imitate Ken's explosive hut, yet it proved adequate. The orange bastards lunged ahead, the sledge rocketing behind them. Then, at a gallop, tails high, their breath streaming back in the frosty air, the huskies raced over the snow. As I tried to control that supercharged team, I felt the excitement that comes to sledges, the sharp awareness, the intense exhilaration. This was polar living. With a flourish of my whip that caused the tip of the 40-foot lash to tangle in my pigtails, concealing my ignorance in a vocal display of confused Anglo-American dog terms, I drew up before Harry and Mac. As the dogs came to a panting, three-point landing and sank down onto the snow to rest, Harry observed us a moment, then he turned to Mac. At least she got him stopped before they took her to the pole. There was a note of pride in his voice I'd never heard before. With pretend seriousness, Mac nodded in agreement. On my next trip, I'm going on an all-woman expedition. In spite of their joshing, I felt for the first time I was a small part of the real Antarctic. End quote. Kevin Walton enjoyed sharing his team training duties with Jenny, as she found it enjoyable and engrossing, and it freed up his time to work on the sledges. Evening entertainments in the East Base Accommodations Hut began well, group singing bringing forth some impressive performances and a sense of group harmony. Jackie Ronnie printed lyric sheets for everyone, and Don McLean led the Stonington Glee Club each night, but enthusiasm for the pastime gave way to cards, reading aloud to one another, and bunkhouse pitching sessions as the rare settled into their island routines and prepared for the long dark. As the days grew shorter and tempers ran hotter, the East Base occupants often strolled outside to visit the dogs to ease the tension with some unstintingly friendly and entirely non-judgmental company of the kind only canines can provide. 
A single edition of the Stonington News went to press, featuring profiles of each rare member, though unlike other based newspapers, it didn't fire enough entertainment or furnish enough distraction to see a second edition. Official communications out of Stonington Island passed through the government station WEK in New Orleans, but rare members could contact ham radio operators anywhere the single sideband signal might reach on a given day. Ham radio operators love being helpful, the entire hobby being based on a will to communicate effectively, and they passed news along to rare members' family and friends by postcard. Writing in Antarctic Conquest, Finn Ronnie recounted, quote, Although no one knew it, I had been operating a United States post office too, but for reasons of state had been compelled to keep it secret. End quote. Post Office Oleana was so secret, the members of the Rare didn't know they could get mail stamped and franked in the Ronnie's tiny hut. The first day covers out of Post Office Oleana are some of the rarest, see what I did there with that excellent pun, of philatelic finds. As with so many other American efforts at administration and claiming in Antarctica, the swearing-in of Finn Ronnie as postmaster for the Rare seems to have been something the State Department could keep in its back pocket in case it ever needed it which to date, it hasn't drawn out. On the 1st of May, Bernard Stonehouse turned 21, and the Fids went all out celebrating this traditional coming of age with cake and drinks and roughhousing. John Conkin occasionally kicked these violent spates off by saying he hadn't had a good roughhouse for ages, at which everyone began wrestling and grabbing at each other in a form of rugby without a ball. The sea began freezing on May the 6th. Nelson McClary joined the Antarctic Swimming Club on the 18th of May, walking backwards over a sheer drop off northeast glacier while assisting in the erection of a radio mast. He drew the guy wire out facing the array, the better to drag on the cable, and didn't watch where he was going. Don McLean called out a warning, but it arrived too late, and McClary disappeared from view and into 21 metres of empty space. Don crawled to the edge of the ice and peered down to find Mac, standing on tiptoe, just able to hold his head above the water, and surrounded by a Mac-shaped hole in the sea ice, alive after the fall, but in danger of hypothermia. Doc Butson, skiing on the glacier at the time of the incident, arrived from uphill as Fisk arrived from below, carrying a rope long enough to reach the newly anointed swimming club appointee, but thinner than anyone might want to apply in lifting a full-grown man in wet Antarctic clothing out of the water and 20 metres into the air. While Fisk headed downhill to fetch a weasel to act as a winch, a bowline, and if you don't know any knots, learn to tie a bowline, which will serve in a lot of roles normally reserved for other single-use knots, was tied in the end of the line Fisk delivered to the scene of the emergency to secure the swimmer from drowning while someone retrieved the more substantial rope from the antenna array. McClary, losing heat and heart in the chilly water, worked a bowline in this thicker line over his shoulders. With the weasel still minutes away, four men on each of the two lines began hauling Mac out of the water and up the sheer side of the glacier by hand. Slipping on the ice and fearful at the rumblings beneath their feet, they raised their colleague to the lip of the cliff, but couldn't retrieve him over the cornest edge. 
six minutes after his adventure in immersion kicked off. Max spotted the solution and called it to his rescuers, who lowered a third rope with a loop he used as a stirrup, lifting himself the final metre to freedom from further freefall. Eight minutes after his surprise immersion, the barely conscious Mac received a blanket-wrapped sledge ride downhill to the bunkhouse. Dry blankets replaced wet clothes, which is still a key element of first aid for the hypothermic today. The whiskey and vigorous massage are not, but the doctors meant well and their patients survived in spite of these measures, now counter-indicated by decades worth of experimental data, which largely arose from research carried out in high-latitude settings. Of secondary concern were the hardened tips of his fingers. These turned black over the succeeding days, and the skin peeled off most impressively and disgustingly, but the living tissue remained undamaged, and Mac retained all digits. The FIDS gave the site of the accident the official name McClary's Leap, much to the disdain of Finn Ronnie, who'd already refused to acknowledge the suggestion of McClary's drop when it arose among his own party. Much as happened with John Tonkin's crevasse fall a year earlier, the emergency shook some sense of how few fucks Antarctica gives about human life into the newcomer Americans, and everyone took their surroundings a little more seriously as a result. With the antenna raised, Pete's Met Reports and Jackie Ronnie's North American Newspaper Alliance articles went north over the airwaves. Andy Thompson established a tide gauge, constructing a shack over the instrument and its mount from Dunwich, having been denied any building materials due to the space shortage and weight limitations aboard the port of Beaumont. Brash ice tore out the under-ice piping. Don helped Andy bolt three 44-gallon drums together to act as a more sturdy mounting for the tide gauge. Filled with rocks to keep them firmly anchored, these looked fit to purpose, but the gauge froze in place within its new confines, making tide readings impossible. Bill Laterty proposed heating the interior of the new pipe with a stolen 100-watt light bulb wired into the East Base power supply on the sly and hidden under a bushel comprising Andy's Asat's science hut, with credit to Jenny Darlington to the neat allusion to Matthew 5.15. Confounded by the continually short power supply, people were set to task to find the source of the unexplained loss, but, what with tide gauges being extremely sensitive, Andy forbade the searchers access to his hut, and the mystery power drain remained mysterious. Chuck Hassage struggled continuously with the generators. With no spares, he and Bill improvised bronze bearings to keep the electrical supply up, but the frustration of his station wore the machinist's patience thin. After yet another long day of thankless, cold work that a half-decent cache of spare parts could have negated, he hurled one of his hammers the length of the accommodation block, where it left a permanent dent in the melter, memorialising his anger in the form of buckled aluminium. The constant extra hundred watts drawn to keep the tidal measurements going contributed to his pain, but science costs, and the price of getting it done in the far south is keeping the fires going, and whether that's in the form of an anthracite stove a Primus cooker or a diesel-powered genset is irrelevant. Ronnie should have furnished Hassage with the parts necessary to keep the lights on, an extra hundred watts of them or not. For his next Sisyphean task, 
Andy set to work building a magnetic measurement hut, again working with scrap wood no one else saw a use for, though this time complicated by copper nails, iron being too much of a distraction for the sensitive magnetometric instruments. Copper is used to make complex beaten shapes for the very good reason that it's very soft and extremely ductile, so it makes really, really shitty nails. Imagine trying to hammer al dente spaghetti and you're pretty much in the right zone. With patience and many ugly corkscrewed copper nails sitting proud of the wood surfaces they tried to hold in place, Andy completed his edifice just in time for a gale to dismantle it and remove the component materials to the far side of the island, where they remained hidden long enough to force the Jobian physicist to construct the magnetic measurements hut, Mark II, from even lower grade wood. As winter temperatures took hold, tempers in the rare accommodations block wore thin. Cubicles of ill-matched pairs seethed, and the anti-Ronnie sentiment simmered. Someone hid the bell the commander used to rouse his charges each morning, and the missing and much-loathed instrument led to an outbreak of finger-pointing, mostly between disgruntled bunkmates. It turned up, but the culprit never came to light, and resentments over a large number of false accusations and one true one that no one but the culprit knew about carried forward for some time. Bob Dodson established a tent city to test the army-supplied equipment. The first night spent camping proved severe, most tent occupants returning to their accustomed East Base accommodations the following night. Sig Gatenko's cookery left the rare hut occupants craving anything not fried, and with cornflakes numbering among the few things he never sought to apply heated oil to, these became a prized treat. People hoarded them as dragons hoard gold, though dragons don't actually exist and wouldn't occasionally eat themselves to hoardlessness. So actually not like dragons hoarding gold. Like a hoarder hoarding their hoard is perhaps a better analogy. Ike Schlossback and Sig Gatenko carried a past saw point into East Base, placing each of them even further apart than the already well-established pro and anti-Ronnie sentiments splitting the rare in half. At West Base, Schlossback stole a ham just as he headed out on the trail, using the purloined pork as a carrot by which to goad a particularly lazy member of his party to greater efforts. Gatenko didn't like Schlossback, and as anyone who's ignored a sharp-honed resentment will know, indifference kept that resentment simmering in the resentful party. Ike regularly goaded Gatenko over the dullness of the menu, asking for pies and requesting seal steaks. Gatenko, affronted at the idea of his galley serving such lowbrow cuisine as seal, retorted that Schlossback could make his own pies. This the one-eyed Renaissance sailor did, to the delight of all who partook. He later followed this culinary performance with a serving of seal steaks, cooked on the coal range and without Gatenko's sanction. The cook steaming at this insult to his profession and his dominion over matters gustatory, deeming seal-eaters as people of questionable ancestry. The only person I can account receiving Gatenko's grudging assent to the use of his range is Jenny Darlington, who put herself out of her Antarctic comfort zone by determinedly baking Harry Darlington a birthday cake in spite of her lack of kitchen experience. On Midwinter's Day, the East Base residents hosted their Trapassi House neighbours to a fried chicken dinner, 
and the FIDS responded by hosting the rare members, seven at a time, to a faux Christmas dinner at Trapassi House, followed by a social evening featuring buttered rum and liar's dice. The long period of estrangement lay dead, though periodic fits of peak on Finn Ronnie's part would see it reinstated to varying degrees over the remaining time the two parties shared Stonington Island. Bernard Stonehouse and Larry Fisk coordinated their meteorological programs to remove as much redundancy as possible and to cover one another if opportunities ever took one or the other away from the island. Kevin Walton, writing in Two Years in the Antarctic, refers to Bernard Stonehouse as working through his duties with an ease his predecessor never managed, but I suspect the deal with Fisk involved a lot of shortcuts not available the previous year, and that a close examination of both meteorologists' data would reveal surprisingly exact parallels in a number of measurements. Whatever the cause of his ease, the extra time Stonehouse found in his routine afforded him opportunities to launch and track the first weather balloons launched by the FIDs in their time at Stonington Island. Reg Freeman made a thorough hydrographic survey of the bay. First, he marked out a grid on the sea ice, mirroring the squares of an ordnance survey map. At each junction of easting and northing lines, he chipped through the sea ice to drop a lead to record the depth. I don't have a current chart of the area, but if he told me the data derived from his winter project still provided the best bathymetric coverage for the area, I wouldn't be at all surprised. Twice a week, the rare invited the fids over for films in the accommodations hut. Kevin Walton usually stayed in Trapassi Hut, using firewatch duty as an excuse to enjoy some quietude. Sometimes, Bill Laterty joined him to sew or arrange his photographs, and the two men became good friends based on this quiet time spent in one another's company. On the 29th of June, a party of 15 members of both bases headed to the Debenhams to visit the BGLE hut, enjoying a lunch of soup and hot dogs among the ghosts of past adventures. East Base kept itself in water through a melter coupled to Katenko's coal range. An iceberg in the bay served as reservoir, with periodic dynamiting doing the large-scale breakup and mining tools the smaller-scale work. The water duty party towed the resulting sled loads of ice to the hut and loaded their cargo into the melter through a chute. With liquid water at a premium, laundry fell by the wayside. Jenny Darlington held to a rigorous daily schedule at first, falling away to weekly and then monthly scrubbing. While she happily washed clothes on request, popping a pair of socks or underpants in with her own smalls became a game of a crappy, mean-spirited kind. Finn Ronnie tried to assert ship's routines on a non-ship situation and read the orders of the day after breakfast. After a feed of fried everything, the volunteer crew of mostly non-sailors didn't appreciate his lecturing style and the anti-Ronnie sentiment continued to rant up in the anti-Ronnie camp. Andy Thompson, in addition to his many scientific duties, took to making mash and distilling the resulting alcoholic fluids to create a high-latitudes moonshine the bootleggers named Schlaunch. I never found any note as to whether this was related to the Gaelic word Schlaunch, but I think it's safe to conjecture that that's the case, though how the toast got nouned 
is lost to history. Andy housed his mash pot and still under the table on which the seismograph instruments lay. The complexity and sensitivity of the array precluded searching beneath the table and its understory of paper readings and packing materials. The bootlegging went on undisturbed beneath this veneer of respectable scientific endeavour the entire winter. Scientists with time on their hands and the full garden of physics and chemistry in which to play can get up to mischief, and I'm surprised they didn't generate bigger and more devastating explosions than they did. The seismic shack, an appendix to the science building proper, also housed the photographic equipment and Dr. Don's taxidermy workshop. Both photographers and taxidermists exhibit symptoms of a parasitic infection that sees them gradually overtake all available flat surfaces with their equipment, consumables and outputs. The shack, unheated and lit by a single candle, took on an aspect that might give Hieronymus Bosch some ideas for a fourth panel for The Garden of Earthly Delights, though the convivial mood and the broad grins of the occupants schlaunching in the cold darkness might lie at odds with his desire to illustrate his ultra-hell as an undesirable destination. With liquor production running slow in the cold, the sly groggers turned to the ethanol supplied for the aviation program and for medicinal tinctures, mixing this with fruit cordial powder to produce a brew they named Brickbats. Laughter and clinking noises overheard arising from the seismic shack led the teetotal members of the rare to put two and two together, and Finn Ronnie confiscated the medicinal alcohol and put the aviators on notice to account all stores. But Schlaunch production continued in its slow but chemically inexorable path. During one sly grogging episode in the Darlington's room, the arrival of the Ronnie revenuers saw the mash slipped under the bed for concealment, at which Chinook imbibed the lot, bringing Schlaunch production to a grinding halt for several weeks and laying the husky out for a full day. At Trapassi House, Doc Butson began a series of experiments geared to keep medical staff engaged and busy while looking after a host of fit young men. Some of these involved measuring gas partial pressures in the men's exhalations, and others involved immersing limbs in ice water for various lengths of time and measuring the resulting changes in blood pressure. No one enjoyed playing Doc Butson's guinea pig, but no one begrudged him his opportunity to science along with the rest of them. The East-based blubber shack went back into service, providing 3,000 pounds of dog pemmican from the seals the rare managed to procure in spite of fiddly concerns about Stonington Island furnishing enough pinnipeds to support two nations' worth of dog teams. The renderers reeked of their blubbery trade, and on still days, the fug of their efforts settled over Marguerite Bay like an olfactory brown study. Ronnie sent Peterson and Dodson to altitude on the plateau to begin the meteorological program, cosmic ray research, and to set the Army Equipment Testing Series underway at a mile above sea level. This early start could furnish the aviation program with a time series to bolster the precision and accuracy of subsequent forecasting, but Harry Darlington felt concerned that the pair lacked sufficient experience in Antarctic conditions to establish the remote camp safely. This new source of friction between Ronnie and Darlington coincided with a new standing order that all animals be housed outside the East Base buildings. Chinook raised enough howling hell when tethered on the outdoors spans that Ronnie relented and the husky returned to Darlington's roost, 
but the episode did nothing to endear either side of the Ronnie Rift to their opposite numbers. Jackie Ronnie and Jenny Darlington ceased associating. Jenny Darlington asserts in her book that this was more a matter of showing solidarity with their partners than it was of the two women falling out, and I'll take that at face value. Jackie Ronnie found a front at this breaking off of female company, but it takes two to maintain a silence, and I don't think she went out of her way to build bridges. Somehow unable to prevent himself alienating his subordinates, Finn Ronnie tried and failed to take Ike Schlossback to task over his smoking arrangements. Ike bored a hole through the wall of his private room to the world outside, allowing him to blow the smoke from his cigars clear of the interior and receiving his ashes without his needing to house an ashtray in his bunk. Someone reported the smoke they saw leaving this small aperture at the end of the building furthest from the coal range, and a fire scare went through the entire party. Unable to effectively chew out the unflappable one-eyed submariner and naval aviator, Finn Ronnie finally resorted to threatening to charge the unrepentant smoker with damaging government property for making a hole in the East Base wall, which Ike Schlossback sensibly ignored, returning to his ashing habit and smoke ventilation with his habitual and soothing mantra, It's a long winter night. It's a long winter night. Where Jackie sought to reinforce her husband's authority, reprimanding personnel for falling short of Finn Ronnie's standards or failing to conform to his standing orders, Jenny Darlington faded into the foreground, taking on whatever task fell her way uncomplainingly, and finding her greatest satisfaction when her Stonington Island colleagues forgot or ignored her gender. There's a photograph of the Darlingtons and a few of their confederates enjoying dinner at Trapassi House. Everyone's dressed in their finest, and it looks like a good time. I can date the meal as July the 13th, 1947, because Jenny Darlington mentions it as the only time she wore her pearls in Antarctica, and she records the event as a turning point in the Stonington Island winter. Hot buttered rum greeted the guests from over the hill as they dressed out of their windproofs and boots. Dougie Mason brandished the coal scuttle and used it to underline a most excellent pun about rum and coke that set the tone of the evening. The contrast between the warm solidarity of the Fids Hut and the dark riddled gloom fest left behind in the East Base accommodations stood out starkly as the meal arrived to a white tablecloth for consumption with shining cutlery and more bonhomie than anyone in the middle of an Antarctic winter below the circle might hold reason to hope for. Where alcohol intake at East Base required stealth and cunning, the British left their weekly supply on a sideboard. Each FID expected to keep tabs on their tab and affording opportunities for ad hoc celebratory sessions. The FIDs started out applying a scheduled weekly session, but found it didn't always fire because the overall mood of the group didn't follow a weekly roster. So the option lay open for people to pull out a bottle and tie one on, if and when the mean mood dictated it. You can't force these things, so they didn't try. Of the many contrasts noted between the US and British presences on Stonington Island that winter, it's the united front of the FIDs that stands out most. While they acknowledged they squabbled among themselves, they never let it show outside their circle, and this couldn't stand in more stark contrast to the atmosphere of fraught tension so obviously in play just over the hill and so often given air as one clique or another 
dropped into Trapassi House for the daily ritual of tea and scones at four o'clock. The menu of the formal dinner the Darlingtons attended featured Antarctic winter fare comprising tinned this and dehydrated that, but the thought that went into making the evening special, such as individual place cards, each featuring a watercolour illustrating some humorous event or aspect specific to the individual, did much to make it a night to remember. Tensions between Finn Ronnie and Harry Darlington continued to escalate. The aviator felt the rare members ill-prepared for the rigours of the trail work, while the leader felt the urgent need to place people in the field to prevent the expedition heading home with no substantial achievements to its name. The flouting of best safe practices chafed at Harry Darlington, and Harry Darlington's brooding over this flouting chafed at Finn Ronnie. Both Harry and Ike Schlossback strongly advocated that no one new to the Antarctic should be out in the trail parties without an experienced hand to hand, but their injunction didn't sway their hard-headed OIC, who implemented his own sledging schedule. Finn Ronnie led the first trail party, comprising Chuck Adams, Art Owen, Peterson and Bill Dodson, to establish the Plateau Camp, departing Stonington Island on the 15th of July. They relayed their stores up Sodomy Slope and reached their mile-high Erie after two days sledging. A blizzard pinned the entire party in place for five subsequent days, but Ronnie still felt determined to leave Peterson and Dodson on site to fulfil their meteorological, cosmic ray and equipment testing programs. A fight among the dogs during harnessing preparations led to Killer, one of the better pullers among the small remaining contingents of Husky the Rare fielded, staying at the plateau camp, minus a hind leg and stone cold dead. Peterson and Dodson managed to make contact with Kelsey for their first radio sked, but missed their second and all subsequent preordained radio-based handshakes. A communications disruption can mean only one thing, according to Governor C.O. Bibble, but that's only pertinent to a galaxy far, far away. In Antarctica, it can mean many things, including a broken radio, atmospheric interference, or everybody dying horribly of cold or carbon monoxide poisoning, or contact with a shape-shifting alien they found in a giant UFO and sensibly thawed out, and therefore failing to operate their transmitter effectively. As the hours passed and the radio receiver remained silent, East Base residents grew increasingly testy with one another, and appetites fell away. For four days, the winds prevented any attempt to reach the plateau camp by air. At first light, still arriving late in the day and only remaining useful to aviators for a few short hours, on the first day of flying weather, Harry Darlington took off from the sea ice in the L5. The floats it came south upon for scouting among the pack, replaced with ski undercarriage. He repeatedly overflew the camp on the plateau, but saw no sign of activity. He threw a canister of lamp black out of the aircraft's window watching it fall to the snow and studying the resulting chiaroscuro plume to assess wind direction and strength in lieu of the more reliable signals available when landing somewhere living people occupy. With the wind too strong to safely attempt a landing, and little to indicate an unsafe one worth the additional risks, he flew back to Stonington to refuel. He made a second flight over the sledge trail, but found no sign of Peterson and Dodson. Darlington urged that they send a rescue party, but Finn Ronnie demurred, 
confident the plateau dwellers didn't hear the aircraft over the sound of the wind. That night's movie in the East Base Accommodations block received an interruption when Bob Dodson, hypothermic and exhausted, staggered in through the machine shop and spoke the devastating news. Pete's down a crevasse. In the days after the sledge's departure, the weather at the plateau camp played out much as it had for Peterson and Dodson's predecessors among the USASA contingent. Wind tore rents in the tents, and the snow entered the rents to occupy space rent-free in their sleeping bags. This snow melted, soaked into the bedding, then refroze, making the sleeping bags useless. Unable to cook, unable to raise East Base on the radio after their first contact, and unable to keep warm, the two men started back for Stonington at midday on the 25th of July, during the first decent break in the weather, roping in and skiing when they felt the crevasse risks highest, but mostly slogging on foot and unroped, as they found they made better progress over the Sastrugi that way. In the half-light of the short July day, progress slowed further as the sunlight faded. Each man took falls and slips, arresting sudden descents with the ice axes. Eight miles from East Base, Peterson silently disappeared while Dodson attended to a bootstrap. Lying on his stomach, Peterson edged toward the dark hole in the snow where his companion last stood, calling into the crevasse. Dodson called back, Pass me a knife. Dodson tied his knife to the end of the 120 foot long alpine rope and lowered it into the darkness, but heard nothing more from Peterson. When he hauled the rope back up, the knife remained on its end. Dodson, unhappy to leave his colleague in the gathering darkness down a hole in the cold, couldn't do anything more for Peterson on his own, and so marked the site with Peterson's skis and the trail marker flags, and headed for Stonington as fast as he could manage in the circumstances. His dramatic arrival during the film sparked immediate action. Harry Darlington, Ike Schlossback, Bill Laterty, and a rewarmed Bill Dodson roped in together and headed up the foot of the northeast glacier. Dr. Don spent some time gathering thermos flasks filled with hot tea and water, hot packs and medical supplies, before heading over the hill with Finn Ronnie to join the FIDs, busy harnessing up Walton's Orange Bastards and Tonkin's team, the name of which eludes me. It might be the Paddy Darkie team, but that seems more likely names of two individual dogs. Doc Butson and Reg Freeman joined the outgoing party, grabbing the crevasse rescue equipment kept in the Trebassi House porch ever since John Tonkin's crevasse incident the previous year. The dogs slowly caught up the four men traipsing up the British route to the scene of the accident. Dodson's downhill navigation in the dark already shaky, sought speed over safety and crossed areas previously ruled out as too dangerous to work over. Even in taking the surveyed route, the rescue party experienced trouble. The three lead dogs of John Tonkin's team went through a snow bridge. Reg Freeman began extricating them, but as he hauled them up, one of the bitches, Lady, wriggled free of her harness and dropped into the darkness and her death. The men and the dogs reached the general area of the accident at around the same time, 
but darkness prevented anyone spotting the skis and flags Dodson used to mark the site of Peterson's fall. While John Tonkin tended to the dogs, and Don McLean established a shelter and got a primer stove going, everyone else roped in to make a sweep search of the area. Flashlight beams probing ahead for ski tracks or skis. One-eyed Ike picked up the trail first, finding faint traces of ski tracks and following them to the skis and flags lying flat on the snow, knocked down and drifted over by the wind that all but obliterated the spoor. Both doctors volunteered to go below on a rope, but Doc Butson, being smaller and lighter, took that dubious honour. Already practised in crevasse rescue following John Tonkin's subterranean adventure, the Fids bridged the crevasse with a sledge and established a pulley block from it. The practicality squared away, Doc Butson reinstated the reality with the question, If I find him dead, what shall I do with the body? The relief Peterson felt at hearing searchers tramping about above him tempered somewhat on hearing this, but he couldn't call out because of the squeeze the crevasse walls placed on him. Finronnie decreed that they should leave Peterson's body in place until the next of kin offered instructions, at which the team lowered Doc Butson into the hole. At the full extent of the rope he called up, Here he is, and then, He's alive. Pass me down another line. Put a loop in the end for a harness. Peterson's body wedged into the crevasse upside down. Over the course of an hour, and with some difficulty, while suspended in space at the end of a long rope, Doc Butson managed to work the second rope into an effective harness around Dodson and chip away enough ice to loosen the crevasse hold on him, allowing those at the surface to pull him free of the socket of ice he lay wedged headfirst into. Twelve hours after his descent, Peterson returned to the surface. A lot of his time in the hole he passed unconscious, only occasionally surfacing from oblivion to contemplate his situation. The doctors hustled him into the Primus warmed shelter and gave their patient morphine for pain in one arm, crushed against his body by the crevasse wall and his own weight but unbroken, and treated one mittenless hand for frostbite. The Fids felt decidedly against trying to recross the terrible ground in which Peterson and Dodson came to grief in darkness, so for the two remaining hours before sunrise, everyone else stamped their feet to keep warm outside before harnessing up for the descent. Both the patient and his exhausted companion and alarm raiser rode the sledges home. Ike Schlossback experienced frostbite in one of his toes as he cut it shortly before heading out, and the blood pooling his boot froze, nearly taking his big toe with it. Dry gangrene pushed the digit as far towards amputation as a toe might go, while remaining attached to the foot that gave rise to it, and the apparently indestructible mariner carried forward with a star-shaped scar where the skin and some underlying tissue died and rotted away. Kevin Walton judged the route taken on the way up under Finn Ronnie's guidance, cut all the safety corners the Fids mapped out to ensure their own safety on the northeast glacier, and figured the tired and beleaguered plateau pair stood no chance of making it down safely in the dark. As with Walton's efforts to rescue John Tonkin, Doc Butson's work in the crevasse that night earned him the Albert Medal, awarded for bravery exhibited while saving a life. 
Trail preparations at East Base led to more tension in an already tense cohort of Antarctic punters. With the rare dog shortage forcing cooperation with the FIDS, the number of rare personnel able to go on trail reduced drastically. People previously assured of a slot in the sledging parties chafed at the prospect of staying in the fractious East Base accommodations while their compatriots headed out for adventure and discovery. Finn Ronnie ruled out Dr Don on the grounds that the women might need his services on base. Dr Don, determined to escape East Base and fulfil a dream ambition, convinced his leader that Doc Butson could act as locum tenens in his stead, and reinstated himself as a sledger. Then he broke his ankle while practising his skiing and ruled himself out categorically, his slot instead going to McClary. Trail preparations at Trapassi House mostly involved long hours of sledge fabrication and repair in the hangar, occupying Kevin Walton, Tommy Thompson and Doc Butson. Before the sledging season commenced, the FIDs possessed 20 sledges, mostly variations on a lightened Nansen design. Each took a set of duties best suited to its idiosyncrasies, with horrible Herbert used for short hauls of seal carcasses, largely because no one liked it and didn't much care if stray dogs gnawed its blood-steeped components to splinters. Slippery Sam's stainless steel runners made for easy running over wet snow. The Jabberwock, Tigger and Winnie the Pooh were the prized steeds slated for the longest trail journeys. Finn Ronnie showed the Fids how to ice their runners before each day of travel, and this led to far less wear during sledging operations, becoming part of the Fids sledging playbook. Kevin Walton noted that the lack of whip left the rare dog drivers unable to control their dog teams with the same finesse as the Fids managed. He took care to note in his book that the whip rarely touched the dogs, and that a good driver used its sound and careful placement near the hindquarters of a dog not pulling its weight to let that dog know the driver saw its slack trace. Bob Dodson and Art Owen needed to rely on their voices alone to get the dogs to pull, and they never achieved the same coordinated effort their British counterparts drew out of their dogs. Particularly, the British dogs knew how to jerk the sledge in unison to break it free of an obstruction. A similar command given to the rare's one team of huskies resulted in them all jumping in the air without applying any forward traction. The butt end of the whip also served the fid dog drivers well in breaking up fights where Bob and Art went into the snarling melees with nothing but their own limbs, albeit well padded with Antarctic clothing, by which to separate the bluing animals. Kevin Walton made a habit of meeting with Bob and Art far out on the sea ice, well out of sight of Finn Ronnie and his cohort of loyalists, to see if some of the fit dog team spirit might rub off on the rare dogs while working the teams in tandem. But even this practice never broke them of their habitual need to follow a person or a dog team out in front of them. Harry Darlington planned the survey flights in the Beechcraft such that no aircraft would ever leave radio contact with the other aircraft and such that no flight track would ever travel more than a walkable distance from a food cache. Each proposed flight relied on accurate ground control from trail parties, so each successive flight plan only came online once the trail parties unlocked it by fulfilling their main campaign quests. 
The flight plans required continuous attention to accurate navigation to ensure safety and to seal the utility of the resulting trimetragon images. As a further safety measure, at least one aircraft should remain on standby any time any other aircraft took to the air, ready to take off in support should anything go wrong for the airborne party. Having drawn together the aviation program and planned the flights and additionally holding more aerial navigation and Antarctic trail experience than the Army Air Force pilots, Harry Darlington fully and reasonably expected to occupy the left seat on all survey flights. He stipulated that all personnel on all flights hold at least four days trail experience to gain some insight as to what to expect if called on to use the emergency supplies and equipment each aircraft carried. His cautious approach to the survey flying program added to the tension between Harry Darlington and Finn Ronnie. The expedition leader kept asserting that they must hurry, 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 and this didn't fit with Harry Darlington's mode. The aviator put his concerns in writing, outlining that he wanted to continue leading the flying program, as Finn Ronnie assured him he would when first courting Harry Darlington's involvement, or to use the rare's one useful dog team to undertake biological research in Marguerite Bay. Ronnie responded by placing Ike Schlossback in charge of aviation, but made no direct written or verbal address to Harry Darlington's letter, choosing instead to ignore the matter and carry on as though it never arose, a mode with echoes reaching into future events at Ellsworth Station in the International Geophysical Year. Harry Darlington continued to prepare the Beechcraft for its test flight, but made no further contributions to flight planning. I think it was around this time Finn Ronnie sent a request that East Base remain staffed into the future as a permanent US presence, going so far as to volunteer to leave personnel on site for the 1948 winter, though I don't know if he consulted any of his team on the matter. The power brokers at home rejected the idea wholesale, making such consultations moot. Tommy Thompson and Dave Jones worked out routines to maximise the ease of operation for the Oster with a bare minimum of additional effort input from other FIDS members. On a day with promising looking weather, they put the requisite four gallons of oil on the stove to warm before heading out to the hangar to clear ice off the doors and, if necessary, dig trenches in any snowdrift accumulated in front of the building up which the Oster's skis could ride as they hauled it out of its nest by block and tackle. If the weather still looked propitious for a takeoff, the stove held the warmed oil ready for pouring into the Gypsy Major's oil tank and sump. Dave ran the pre-flight checks as the oil's heat permeated the engine block. The Gypsy Major is a small unit and didn't require the combustion heater and canvas plumbing applied to radial engines as recounted in episodes covering Little America's 1 through 3 and the USASE and Wilkins and Ellsworth's high-latitude aviation activities. Dave swung the propeller while Tommy worked the magnetos and throttle in the cockpit and the engine usually burst into life with two or three attempts at starting. A few minutes at idle and the oil and engine temperature gauge needles rested in the green, the airframe ready for takeoff. The pair of FIDS aviators operated the Oster with great care and attention to detail, parking it back in its hangar after use, topping up the fuel tanks and draining the oil before filling out the Form 700 and calling it a day, closing the hangar doors on their way out. 
With their airframes stored out in the open, their rear counterparts faced far harder yards maintaining their aircraft, and bringing even the L-5 Sentinel to readiness took several hours. Larry Fisk spent a lot of time fitting out the weasel-tracked vehicles for trail operations. They received bunk beds, cooking facilities and sled trailers made from pairs of British Grahamland expedition sleds, retrieved from the Debenham Island and lashed side by side. Greetings this episode to Annette and Andy, two of the most amazing people who are raising two of the most amazing people in their turn. 